All right. Well, beginning today, brothers and sisters, and finishing up actually uh, two weeks from today, Josh is not here today, but Lord willing, he'll be preaching for me next week. Um, But beginning today, we have finally come to these texts that I have said that eventually we would deal with, namely those which speak either of seeing God's glory, or at least announcing to Moses he will see his glory, we just read at the end of chapter 33, or the text which speaks of the effects of God's glory upon Moses in particular at the end of chapter 34. I've chosen to deal with these two texts together, at least uh, in terms of the order of dealing with them, because in a certain sense, uh, they are somewhat unintelligible without each other. And so, even though they're, they're separated by an entire chapter, they're kind of bookends, if you will, of chapter 34, at the very end of chapter 34, at the end of chapter 33. Nevertheless, because the material is so interrelated, I have chosen to deal with them together, um, not in one sermon, but in two in terms of order. Today, we will primarily look at the first uh, bookend. And just so you know, I'll be referring to them as bookends several times, so you know what I'm talking about. But we'll be looking at the first bookend, which we just read, Exodus 33, 18 through 23. And then two weeks from today, we'll look at the second one, Exodus 34, 29 through 35. When we come together for the second time, I will give a bit of brief comment, very brief, on the statutes and commands that God gives in uh, verses 10 through 28 of chapter 34. Um, But for the large part, I'm not going to go too far into detail because most of the material, while while not unimportant, um, it's a repetition of things that have already been given in chapter 23 of Exodus. And if you want actually um, to compare the two, you can do that if you want just a little way to dive in deeper into God's Word. All that to say, because these two texts are interrelated, we're going to deal with them together. Furthermore, and very interestingly, as we'll see a bit of today, Paul, in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, draws from and makes allusions to both of these bookends, and he has some fascinating things to tell us. Really, what Paul gives us is um, a staggeringly profound spirit-inspired commentary on these two texts, these two bookends. He has incredible things to say about Christ, about God. He draws out some very profound points of covenant theology, as we'll see uh, particularly two weeks from now. And he sheds light on some, uh, I was trying to think of a good term, I hope this doesn't sound (laughs) too ridiculous, mouthwateringly good truths about the blessings of the new covenant. Truly, he goes into great detail. He unpacks, as we'll see, great blessings that you and I have in the new covenant, brothers and sisters, which, which await us in the glory to come. All of that from these two passages, these two bookends. Today, as we consider the first bookend, Even though this passage is in many ways simply an announcement that God will further reveal himself to Moses, that further revelation taking place in the following chapter, which we actually looked at last week, yet even here in the announcement of the coming revelation, God reveals something marvelous and profound about himself. 
about his nature. Namely, he says that although he shall indeed let all of his goodness pass before Moses, and although he shall invoke his own name, the Lord, before Moses, yet that revelation shall be incredibly limited, such that Moses shall be said to only see God's back, but by no means his face. As we shall see, even this announcement of divine limitation of God's self-revelation to Moses is itself a profound revelation all its own. And it refers to what theologians call divine incomprehensibility. Divine incomprehensibility. It is the doctrine that God is not partly, but absolutely and completely incomprehensible to everyone and every being but himself. This means none can comprehend God. You could take the brightest humans who ever lived. You could take Solomon with all his, his depth. I think it says his wisdom was like the sand of the sea, right? Just brilliance. You could take Paul, who at some times... He's so deeply, uh, he's so, so deep in his knowledge of divine things, he sounds like a madman at times. We'll see a little bit of that next week. And sometimes Paul says things that are hard to understand. It's not because Paul's crazy or confusing. He truly understands what, he's me- what he means. It's just he has such profound depth of knowledge of divine things. Even for Paul, though, he couldn't comprehend God means you could even take the greatest angel, the greatest angelic being. God could even make a greater angelic being, a greater creature than he's ever made before, and neither would this creature be said to comprehend God in any sense. Now, you might be scratching your head a little bit, because last week, and hopefully every week, We learn or are refreshed in our knowledge of all kinds of truths about God and His nature. We saw just last week, He is a God merciful and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In fact, you might be thinking to yourself, Pastor, if we can't comprehend anything about God, why were you spinning your wheels for over an hour last week, right? If we can't comprehend God. Here we have to understand that the term incomprehensible or incomprehensibility has a very precise meaning in theology and philosophy. and We don't often use the word with this kind of precision in daily life. Today, to comprehend something means to know it or to understand it. Um, most Americans are probably familiar with the Spanish. If you're to say, me comprendes, right? You understand me, right? It's the same thing. Most modern European languages kind of use that term comprehend in a very similar way, to know or to understand something. In theology, however, incomprehensibility has a much more specific meaning. Dr. James Dolezal, who in fact, if you want to know, if you really want to get a much better lecture on divine incomprehensibility, just type in his name, divine incomprehensibility online, and you'll find all kinds of free things Um, Sometimes he can be incomprehensible, though, I will say, having heard him several times. Um, He's he's brilliant. Um, But he explains the meaning this way. He says, prehendere in Latin means to grasp or to obtain. When prefixed with com, 
comprehendere. It means to grasp a thing in its totality so as to enclose or contain it. I may comprehend a physical object, he says, such as a penny by enclosing it in my hand. When referring to knowledge then, comprehension means to know a thing in its entirety to get your mind around it, so to speak. Brothers and sisters, that can never be said of God. No one can ever say they have comprehended God, that they have gotten their mind around Him. That's not possible. Augustine says very bluntly, if you comprehend, it is not God that you comprehend. No one can say they have found the limits of His entirety. No one can say they have mastered God. And so in theology, we say that God is incomprehensible not capable of being comprehended by anyone other than himself. Nor can we even say we comprehend a portion of God. This is wrong for several reasons. We could also point to the doctrine of simplicity, that God is not made of parts. But we can't even say, well, truly God is infinite, and I can't know everything, but at least this small portion, this small doctrine, I can comprehend Um, No, you can't. Not if we understand that as saying, I have mastered this knowledge. I know all of its limits. No, God is absolutely and completely incomprehensible. And you might say, Pastor, but don't we know things about God? Amen. Yes, we do. Many things can be known about God, all things, in fact, which He has revealed, but even these revealed things can never still be said to be comprehended, known perfectly in their entirety. Some make a distinction and say they may be apprehended, and that's fine. We can apprehend, we can know certain truths, but comprehended, that can never be said of God. However, as we shall see today, This doctrine of divine incomprehensibility, far from being a spiritual killjoy, far from making God cold and distant, on the contrary, while humbling, it is exhilarating to the soul. As Augustine says, we are speaking of God. Is it any wonder if you do not comprehend Simply put, brothers and sisters, if God were not incomprehensible, He would not be God, and if He were not God, He would not be worthy of worship. But if incomprehensible, if God, His incomprehensibility is one of the chiefest delights of our, joy, of our soul, one of the greatest sources of our peace. Indeed, again and again, we see in Scripture that far from killing worship and the praise of God, on the contrary, His limitlessness, His incomprehensibility, His infiniteness gives birth to praise and doxology. It's as if the authors of Scripture at times are are, are so unable to, to, to explain and express God and His fullness that they can't even do it anymore, and they turn from describing Him to just praise Paul says in Romans 11, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That's the product of incomprehensibility. Not a comprehensible God. Furthermore, our incomprehensible God is not cold or distant either. Rather, it is precisely this incomprehensible God who not only cast upon us His divine electing love, but who has gone to great lengths to make Himself known to us, even taking on a finite human body, a finite human form that we might, well, not comprehend Him, that we might have knowledge of Him. He sent His Son to take on flesh, to come to us, to bring us into fellowship with Him, though He is the incomprehensible God. And so John can say in 1 John chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We can have fellowship with the incomprehensible God through Jesus Christ. Lastly, but very importantly, brothers and sisters, if God is not incomprehensible, not only is He not worthy of praise, but neither can He save. In fact, all throughout Scripture, God's limitless incomprehensibility is the deep bedrock of the peace of the saints. It is the stuff that souls cast themselves upon when the whole world is spinning around them. The fact that their Redeemer is not merely a powerful, moral, brilliant thinker. He's not even some powerful angel, but as the confession of faith says, He is an immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite God. And therefore you can say with Paul, if that kind of a God before us, who could be against us? If the incomprehensible God cast his electing love upon you, who can pluck you out of his hands? None. Let's turn now to our text that we might try to apprehend more about our incomprehensible God. Beginning then in verse 18, it says, Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Now here, just note, um, God, when he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, again, that would contradict what he just said um, later that only Moses can see his back. He means, I will give you a great revelation of all my goodness. Furthermore, as we've noted before, here God's goodness and his glory are very much tied to his name, his name. This is because, again, as we've seen before, God's name is not merely a name. My name is Ryan. I was almost a Tyler. Ooh, it just, it doesn't sound like me. I'm a Ryan, right? 
But that could have been different. It's not the same thing with God. His name is not something outside of himself, but it is really a revelation of his essence. In a certain sense, you can say God is his name. This is why we praise the name of God. Only God is to be praised. We praise his name. Why? God's name is himself. Furthermore, God's name, we should note, is also his true essential name is incomprehensible to us. He has revealed himself through many names, even his, his covenantal name of Yahweh, Jehovah, and yet what his most essential name is, is known only to himself. We've seen this uh, before when we talked about the third commandment, the name of the Lord. In Judges 13, for example, when Manoah asked the angel of the Lord his name, the NIV, I think, is the best translation. The, the angel replies, why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. I think the ESV says wonderful, um, but if you look at Psalm 139, David talks about the limitness, limitlessness of God, and he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I cannot understand it. It's the idea of something that is beyond understanding. It, it blows your mind, and the angel of the Lord says, why do you ask my name, seeing it is beyond understanding? That's God's essential, incomprehensible name. Nevertheless, God shall reveal his goodness to Moses. And he shall utter his name because the two are tied together. We should also note here, um, the mention of God's name is one of several ironies that we'll see in this passage and the one that we'll look at um, Moses does this and as he's writing this, and God has inspired it through the Spirit, but you, you have to kind of appreciate them. For example, uh, the Lord said to Moses in verse 17 of chapter 33, I know you by name. Remember, he has said that to Moses, Lord, you say you know me by name. You say you know me, and the Lord says, indeed, I know you by name. Well, here, it's the Lord who's going to pronounce his name to Moses as well. Additionally, we'll see in the second bookend, um, not only can Moses not see God's face, but when he comes back down, what part of Moses is shining? It's his face. And indeed, it's so bright that Israel cannot look upon Moses' face. There's all kind of like really interesting little ironies there that we'll kind of point out along the way, but this is the first one. God is declaring his name when Moses says, you know me by name, kind of like Show me your glory. Show me more of your name, of who you are. Verse 20, it says, But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. There's a few puzzling things here that need to be unpacked a little bit. On the one hand, it's not terribly puzzling, I guess, that God says that Moses can't see his face, uh, for man shall not see me and live. On the one hand, we see passages like that all throughout Scripture. For example, John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. 1 Timothy 6.16 speaks of God, quote, who dwells in unapproachable light, 
whom no one has ever seen or can see. Leviticus 16, interestingly, says that when, Moses, or when Aaron or the high priest enters into the most holy place, he is to, quote, put incense on the fire before the Lord, and the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. Remember, the Lord has said he will appear over the testimony, over the, uh, the mercy seat, and it's as if the cloud is a buffer protecting the high priest that he not see God and die. What is puzzling, on the other hand, are all those passages, and there are many, in which we do read of people seeing God or especially seeing His face, and in fact, they openly say that they do. For example, Jacob, in Genesis 32, after wrestling with the angel of the Lord, quote, called the name of the place Peniel, which means the face of God saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Judges 6, we're told, Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord my God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And lastly, Manoah, in Judges 13, says to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. What are we to make of these apparently contradicting statements that on the one hand, no one can see God without, not without exploding, I don't know, whatever happens to people when they see God. And on the other hand, reading people um, who not only say they see God, but are very much aware that people who see God will die and yet say, and yet we have not died, right? What are we to make of these kinds of passages? I think here we need to draw an important distinction in line before God revealing himself in various visible forms and his true invisible essential nature. Whenever people say that they saw God or his face, I think they actually saw a face. I think it was a real face that was human in appearance. Um, We see this with the angel of the Lord. He often appears just like a man. Um, For example, Um, sometimes when the Lord appears, he'll even eat food, as when the three men came to Abraham and he waited on them. They ate. At other times, he holds a staff in his hand and he touches offerings and they burn up in fire and then the angel of the Lord escapes, or not escapes, but disappears with the flame, right? At other times, although we know it is the angel of the Lord, he is simply referred to as a man. So Jacob, when he wrestles with God, it actually says, quote, and a man wrestled with Jacob. Or when God visits Abraham, it actually says three men came to him. Or when the angel of the Lord appears to Manoah in his wife, although we know it's the angel of the Lord, at first she tells Manoah it was a man of God. Now, she notes his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of the Lord, very awesome, not the average guy you see on the street, but he still was a man in some sense. And I think God appeared in a visible form like a man, and they truly saw a face, okay? Yet, when we come across texts that say you cannot see God's face and live, or you cannot see God and live, I think those are speaking to his incomprehensible nature. You may see a physical form in some way that looks like a face, but you cannot see his true face. Now, that's 
metaphorical language, it's uh, anthropomorphic. Does God have a face? No. He doesn't have a body. He's a spirit, right? But it's speaking to this fact that in his essential nature, his invisible nature, he cannot be seen. Now, there's two really interesting th- things to note here. First, in many of these texts that I just mentioned and elsewhere in Scripture, in which people are said to see God or his face, God's name is also mentioned. It's kind of interesting. Indeed, it seems that there is a connection between God's name and his face. They often go together. For example, if you want, turn with me to Genesis 32, verses 24 through 30. Genesis 32. Twenty-four through thirty. It says, <clears throat> And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail with against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. Kind of sounds like, please show me your glory, doesn't it? Please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Next, turn with me to Judges 13. Judges chapter 13, verses 17 through 23. Judges 13, 17 through 23. says, And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when your words come true, we, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful or beyond understanding? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord, and Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, would he now have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these? Again, There's this interesting discussion of God's name and yet also the the terror of realizing you've seen God's face. Lastly, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it. Revelation chapter 22, 4, it says of the saints in the new heavens and the new earth, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. As far as the connection between the two, um, I'm sure there's a lot more I could grow in my understanding of this. I'm going to conjecture what what I think it is. 
Um, I wasn't able to find anything uh, definite of people uh, talking about this. But again, I, I think it goes back to the idea of knowing someone. If you remember, we said that with Moses, he appeals to his relationship with God by saying, yet you have said, I know you by name. I said, we, we said that to know someone by name means much more than you know their name. It speaks of truly knowing a person, uh, knowing someone intimately. If you remember, if, I said, if, if I were to tell you, oh, hey, that, that person's name is this, go up to them and say, hey, Bob, how's it going? They would probably say to you, if they were really polite, they'll go, oh, how's it going, brother? They'll use the universal name of all Christians when you forget people's name, which is brother or sister, Right? It's gotten a lot of people out of tight situations. Or if he's less polite, he might say, I'm sorry, do, I, do we know each other? Why? Because so often when we use people's names, it means we know them, right? We know who they are to some degree. I would say that it's similar with faces in many ways. Even more than names, perhaps, we know people especially by their face. This is something we do naturally, even from birth. Um, it's been very interesting to me. I've, I've noted this particularly with Santiago, our, he's our four-month-old, how so naturally, from a young age, children, infants just gravitate towards the face, and especially to the eyes. It's like they understand. And it's so funny. It's, sometimes I'll catch him staring at me, and then I look, and we connect eyes, and then he smiles. It's as if he's saying, ah, now we are connecting with one another because it's through the face and through the eyes. I, I read that, in fact, there's a very sad neurological disorder called prosopagnosia um, or face blindness in which people are unable to recognize faces. Um, it's something that our brain does. In fact, I was talking to a visitor who came, and I'm thinking my brain is like having that itch that you can't scratch, and I'm thinking, I've seen your face before. It's something our brains do, and yet some people have a neurological disorder which, which prevents them from recognizing faces, and it's socially crippling. Why? Because the face is one of the primary ways that we know people and we communicate. In fact, again and again in Scripture, to have intimate conversation is to speak what? Face to face, right? Furthermore, as a uh, the face, as opposed to the back, which is important because God says that Moses can only see his back, not his face, the face often speaks of intimacy and being in someone's direct presence. So, for example, Pharaoh says to Moses, get away from me, take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Similarly, if, we, if the face speaks of intimacy, at times, the back can speak of distance from someone, maybe their unknowableness um, or, or even a lack of favor. For example, in Jeremiah 18, 17, God says, like the east wind, I will scatter them before the enemy. I will show them my back, not my face, in the day of their calamity. And indeed, if you see someone's back, you see them, but not really. You couldn't pick them out in a crowd because it's the face by which we truly know someone, just as it is with names. 
The second thing that's interesting to note in all these passages, or at least three main ones, in which God's face and His name appears, is that in all of them, there's this element of incomprehensible unknowability to some degree. Sometimes it's expressed more with the name. You can see God's face, but you can't know His name. With Jacob, why is it you ask my name? With Manoah, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? Yet both men are said to see the face of God. Here with Moses, he cannot see God's face, but he can hear his name. There's incomprehensibility, but it's expressed more on the part of the name. All of this, brothers and sisters, I think, is getting at the incomprehensible element of God. You can know his face, but you can't know his name. You can know his name, but you can't know his face, all getting at the fact that though He can reveal Himself to us and we can have true knowledge of Him, yet we cannot comprehend Him. There is always an element of God in which He will escape us. We will find ourselves entering over new horizons and vistas only to see it go off again into the distance, to get there and find it keep going on into the distance. And so He can say at times, why do you ask my name? Or at other times, you cannot see my face. As I've said, brothers and sisters, this doctrine should exhilarate our souls and cause us to break out into praise at our unsearchable God. The Scottish pastor, the Marrow Man, as he's called, Thomas Boston, writing about this very doctrine, tells a story. He says, a man named Simonides, a heathen poet, being asked by a king, what is God, desired a day to think upon it. And when that day was at the end, he desired two days. And when these were passed, he desired four days. Thus he continued to double the number of days in which he desired to think of God before he would give an answer. Upon which the king, expressing his surprise at his behavior, asked him what he meant by this. To which the poet answered, The more I think of God, he is still more dark and unknown to me. Brothers and sisters, even in glory, when we shall know God perfectly according to the capacity for which he made us to know him, the, the, the effects of sin upon our ability to know God will, been, will have been entirely removed. Even then, you could say to a saint in glory, what is God? And they will say, give me a day. They will say, give me two days, and on and on until it's give me a billion years. Give me two billion years. Give me a billion, billion years. And at the end of the time, they would say, the more I think about him, the more he is dark and unknown to me. Who can know the incomprehensible God in his entirety? It should cause us to delight in our God. This is our God, brothers and sisters. I remember one time when I first heard Romans 9 unfolded to me as a new Christian, and I was very frustrated. And uh, we were taking a break. It was like a, a lecture series. And I went outside, and there was a sweet older brother. He was kind of a simple brother, but very wise. 
And I kind of said a couple snarky things about like, oh, great, now we can't know anything about God or something like that. And he was very wise and he said, yeah, but what kind of a God would he be if you could comprehend him, brother? What kind of a God would that be if you could wrap your head around him? If you said, I can entirely encompass this God with my human reason, what kind of a God would that be? Indeed, not a God, a God of the pagans, the God not to be worshipped, not to be adored and loved. That is not our God. Yet we shall not only break forth in praise, but in tears of thankfulness, as we consider that this incomprehensible God has in His sheer mercy made Himself known to us. And what's more than this, He has gone to indescribable lengths to do so, taking upon Himself finite human flesh to come in our form, that we might see His human face, hear His human voice, and touch and hold Him with human hands, Jesus Christ. Indeed, if the doctrine of divine incomprehensibility makes God seem cold and distant to you, look no further than Jesus of Nazareth to see the warm heart of this incomprehensible God. This is where we tie in with Paul in 2 Corinthians. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verses 3 through 6. Second Corinthians 4, 3 through 6. Paul says, <clears throat> And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Now, I'll stop there. What does Moses do in Exodus 34 when he comes down the mountain and everyone runs from him? He puts a veil over himself. And Paul will actually say some, uh, there are some profound mysteries in that that we'll see Paul unpack last week. Um, he has likened the veil that covered Moses' glorious face to, to the hardness of heart of the Jews of his day so that they cannot see the glory of God. And so he says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Continues, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now think about that for a second. Christ is the image of God, he says. We've seen before that to be something or someone's image is tied to sonship, and so Christ is the Son of God. But an image is also something that is seen, is it not? Paul here says that Christ is the image of God, just as he says explicitly in Colossians 1.15 that Christ is the image of the invisible God. See the point he's making? Continues on in verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You want to see God? Look at His image. 
You want to see the face of God? Look at the Son by faith. And look at him with your eyes one day in the new heavens and the new earth. John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Do you want to know the deep mysteries of God, brothers and sisters? Look to Jesus. Paul says in Colossians 2 that it is in Christ, quote, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. That's why Christ is the great repository of all wisdom and knowledge. Why? Because he's God in the flesh. If you want to know the deep, profound mysteries, look to Jesus and know him by faith. Lastly, brothers and sisters, well, not lastly, almost lastly, not only did Christ take on flesh and dwell bodily, but he died bodily, shedding human blood that he might redeem us from sin. If the incomprehensibility of God perhaps makes you think that God is cold and distant, look by faith at the warm human blood of Christ as it dripped from the cross. And see the tremendous lengths of love which the incomprehensible God went to redeem and draw you into fellowship with him. Lastly, brothers and sisters, it is good news that God is incomprehensible because if he weren't, he could not be a God who saves. You would have no hope with all the problems you face in this next week. I could not say to you, look to the Lord, trust in him, wait upon the Lord, None of those things can be true if he is not the incomprehensible God. I'd say the ultimate example of man trying to make God comprehensible, we refer to as Socinianism. Socinianism, the arch heresy during the time of the Puritans. We've looked at Socinianism in Sunday school, but one of their, maybe their major tenet, was to make human reason the rule of all truth instead of Scripture. Whereas the Reformed made Scripture the rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience, as our confession says, even a rule over human reason. For Socinians, it was the opposite. Reason was the rule, and they would even go so far as to say, that which is not in accord with reason ought not to be believed. Because of this, Not only did they make God comprehensible, but they actually just made God a man writ large. Sadly, was he not God, but he couldn't save. You couldn't put your trust in him and rely on him. The one that uh, captures this the best is John Owen. He wrote a lot of like, like shotgun blast destructive criticisms of Socinianism. But perhaps the most biting critique he ever made 
was a kind of funny slash really sad humorous mock catechism that he made called the Socinian Catechism. We have a Baptist catechism that we teach our children. He says, this is what Socinians teach. This is their faith, right? What is God? God is a spirit that hath a body, shape, eyes, ears, hands, feet, like us. Where is this God? In a certain place in heaven upon a throne where a man may see from his right hand to his left. Doth he ever move out of that place? I cannot tell what he doth ordinarily, but he hath formerly come down sometime upon the earth. What, hot, what doth he do there in that place? Among other things, he conjectures at what men will do here below. Doth he then know what we do? He doth what we have done, but not what we will do. What frame of mind is he in upon his knowledge and conjecture? Sometimes he is afraid, sometimes grieved, sometimes joyful, and sometimes troubled. And then lastly, Owen says this, What peace and comfort can I have in committing myself to his providence if he knows not what will befall me tomorrow? Answer, what is that to me? See you to it. That's a comprehensible God. What kind of a God can you trust if he is incomprehensible? What peace can I have? Limitless peace. Infinite peace. Immeasurable. Every way infinite because it is founded in your incomprehensible, infinite God. And he can save. And we'll close with this. It's what Job says. Job 5, 18 through 6, 8 through 16. As for me... I would seek God, and to, to God would I commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends water on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices, devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success he catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor have hope, and injustice shuts her mouth. That is the hope of those who look to the incomprehensible God. Look to him today, brothers and sisters. Look to him this week. Delight your soul in him. Look to Jesus Christ to see the clearest picture you can of the incomprehensible God. And if you have not yet come to this God by faith, come to him. He is not cold and distant, but sent his son to bring sinners into fellowship with him. And all you need to do is come and receive freely and you will receive from him. Let's pray. Well, Father, what can we say? We thank you, Lord, that in your revelation to us, you desire that we call you Father. Because although you are incomprehensible to us, 
Yet we know more or less that fathers have a deep love for their children, and so you have revealed your deep love for us and commanded that we call you Father, and so we do. Father, would you delight our souls in your majesty and limitlessness? Would you delight our souls with the love that you have to send your own image to be with us that we might see you through his face? I pray for those here who at this moment or perhaps up to this moment have been blinded, who have a veil of hardness over their heart that they might not see. As Paul says, that veil is taken away by Christ. Would you take away that veil from those here who have not eyes to see and give them eyes of faith that they might know you, the Father and your Son. We ask this now in Jesus' name.